take the skills you have, you can apply it to so many things. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive, Amparity, and Element. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 93, and today's guest is Andy Ostroy. Andy and I have been friends for over 30 years, meeting as part of our roles in the direct marketing industry. He's been an entrepreneur, founding Bellardi Ostroy, an integrated marketing company. He's been a producer with a documentary about his late wife, Adrian Shelley. And now he's a podcaster with his fun show called The Back Room with Andy Ostroy. He has an ability to get some great guests. So if you have not yet listened, please check it out. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my longtime friend, Andy Ostroy. Andy's an entrepreneur, film and television producer and director, podcaster, writer, and nonprofit founder. And as I mentioned to him when we got started, he's the first grandfather that I've ever interviewed on my show. He has spent 35 years in marketing, including 20 at Bellardi Ostroy, the firm that he co-founded in 1997. He directed and produced Adrian, the 2021 HBO documentary about his late wife, actor, writer, director, Adrian Shelley uh, from Waitress fame, who was murdered in 2006. After Adrian's death, he founded and is executive director of the Adrian Shelley Foundation, which has awarded over 100 production grants to women filmmakers. His writing has appeared in the Daily Beast, Huffington Post, and New York Times. And in 2022, he created The Back Room with Andy Ostroy, a politics and pop culture podcast. Past guests include Jake Tapper, Katie Couric, Soledad O'Brien, Paul Rudd, Judd Apatow, and Juliana Margulies. He also owns, co-owns Samuel's Sweet Shop in Rhinebeck, New York. Andy, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a long time. Nice to see you. We have known each other for lots of, uh, of years uh, as we both got our starts, uh, I guess, in the, uh, the catalog and the list industry. Glad that we can uh, chat today. One of the things, you know, I think that's so amazing about you, other than the fact that we have stayed friends all these years, you're just a heck of a nice guy. You've had such an amazing and diverse kind of career. I fully expect that you're going to announce today that you're going to be on the new season of Dancing with the Stars. No, I wouldn't be that lucky. I'm going to be on Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I can only aspire to be on Dancing with the Stars. So we get uh, going on this show. Uh, we'd like to get the background, the first story, if you will, of the guest. You know, a little bit about where you, you grew up and whether anything, you know, in, in that upbringing kind of foreshadowed uh, how your career would uh, ultimately take off. Well, I grew up in Far Rockaway, Queens, literally a stone's throw from the beach. The ocean was our view from our windows. Uh, it was a great place to grow up as a kid, ball fields and boardwalk and beach right outside the door. 
Um, my dad was a, it was a blue collar family. Uh, I was the first person to go to college. My dad was a taxi driver. My mom was a stay at home, uh, mother, quite the typical, very much like an Archie Bunker, like dysfunctional grown, uh, upbringing. You know, we were, we were the classic blue collar Queens family and all the trappings that you can imagine go with it. And I think that environment somehow just based on what, what I was born with, it gave me a, a lot of aspiration to sort of exit that world if I could, you know, just from uh, being able to enjoy life and, you know, experience things differently than my family had. And I was fortunate enough to do that. You know, I went to public college and I paid my own tuition. And I was telling somebody yesterday, I literally paid room and board to my parents. Like I couldn't live in my own house unless they shook me down like the mob. So it was <laughs> it was quite a ride. But, you know, I learned at a very early age how to have a certain work ethic and how to be responsible and take care of myself and take care for myself. So I think it was a good foundational exercise uh, we can leave it at that <laughs> yep well we we kind of had similar you know backgrounds i grew up in a blue collar family also the the first one to go to college uh in brooklyn you know so not far different than uh you know kind of the area that i think uh you know you grew up and you know brooklyn college which is where i think you went was uh you know not far from where i grew up so uh you know interesting we met uh, in the late 80s, um, I was at a, a catalog company called Tweeds. Um, you were at a company called The Specialists. What kind of a business was that? Uh, I guess it fell under the direct marketing umbrella. But in those days, there were companies that just focused on the buying and selling of mailing lists. And, uh, that, you know, when, when I used to get asked what I did and what kind of company it was, to make things easy for both the person I was talking with and for myself, I would just say, you get home, you find stuff in your mailbox. There's a reason why you got it versus your next door neighbor. I'm part of that process. And when I tried to explain that to my son when he was about nine and asked me what I did, and I said, I, you know, I helped put that stuff in the mailbox. He looked at me and said, so you're a mailman. And I said, no. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with being a mailman. No, but he really wasn't following where I was, what I was trying to communicate. But he was young. And I, and I said, OK, we'll, we'll we'll have this conversation again in a year. And you might grasp a little better. Well, this is inside uh, joke, I guess, between you and I. But you know, those were the days where you were. It was one of the important things you were doing was keeping exchange balances. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I spent thirty-five years in that world, and I've been out of it for seven now, and it's like it never happened. I literally have to close my eyes and try to remember tangible moments, because the truth is, I was never supposed to be in that industry. Uh, my degree was broadcast journalism. I tell people like when I'm doing the podcast now, I literally now feel like I'm finally doing what I was born to do. I sort of clung on to writing over the years. I had some moments here and there of notoriety all on the, like on the side, you know, this is a hobby. Uh, I had done stand up for a while during the nineties. And there's so many things I would have done differently, but uh, you know, back in those days, and this is, again, no no knock on the family, but like with my kids, I'm like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? What's your dream? I'll help you. Like, no one was asking me that, you know, and, if, and the one time I said, hey, I want a drum set and I play the drums. It took me 32 years to get my own set, but, you know, too loud. You're not getting one. 
And so now I'm thinking like, thank God Ringo Starr's parents never told him it was too loud. You know, we all grow up and hopefully on some level, there's a nurturing of the, you know, like it takes a village. People who, you know, we as parents, I think are different than perhaps a lot of the parents in the generations that we grew up in. And so I fell into this industry that you and I were in that when we met and it really, it was not what I was born to do. Uh, I'm not sure it's for anyone that, you know, <laughs> like I'm not sure anyone says like when they're a little kid, I want to grow up, be in direct marketing, but, but I'm sure there's a lot of kids in college who really do want to go into marketing and that's what they feel compelled to do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny as you're, you know, talking about, you know, family and, and nurturing and, and what have you, you know, I'm a, a big Springsteen fan. And, you know, if you listen, if you know Springsteen and you know his story, you know, his, you know, much like you were talking about, you know, your parents saying the drums are too loud, you know, his father was not at all into the fact that he wanted to play guitar and and be in a band. Right. But, you know, certain people just have that drive and and they go on and, and do what uh, their inner self tells them to do. Yeah. You know, I get it. Over the, the 20 years, and we'll, we'll move away from this direct marketing stuff, you know, quick, but over the 20 years or so that you were in, uh, that you had the business, lots of things changed. You know, you became a startup and <laughs> and moved. Go ahead. Say what you really want to say. <laughs> say what you said back then. <laughs> yeah. So this is also another uh, a friendly thing between Andy and I. He was pitching a company. And I famously said to him, you know, we can't really take our business to a, quote, shitty little startup. And uh, Andy has always reminded me that I said that to him. And in fact, I was very wrong. Um, he and his uh, partner created an awesome business. Uh, they employed lots of people and they gave lots of value to their clients. So um. <laughs> it really was, I think, one of the only things that actually motivated me to succeed was to be able to get back to you and say, okay, here we go. Here's the shitty little startup. <laughs> well, and you did. And I was very glad to eat those, uh, those words, but all kidding aside, you got into this business. You started something from scratch. You know, I have, you know, folks that listen to this that are, you know, entrepreneurs, what are the one or two things that were more difficult for you than you thought they might be as you were developing a business? I mean, we launched the business in 97. So we launched it in a very turbulent economic period. We kind of succeeded despite ourselves, despite our timing. I just feel like the real answer to that question is there's never a good or a bad time. It's like when people say, you know, wait till you can afford to have kids. You know, if you're going to wait for that moment, you're never going to have kids, right? So I think we went through the normal challenges, but we were pretty successful early on. We were profitable from the very first year, we were profitable every year for 20 years that I was there and the business grew and expanded. And I think we tried to always keep our finger on the pulse of the industry, where it was headed, what were the clients looking for that we didn't offer yet? How can we get ahead of the curve? And when we brought on, uh, even of course, you know, Polly, we brought on Polly Wong and we created a consulting division to really become more of an integrated marketing company versus a, a list services company. And that exploded. That was, we were so ahead of the curve on that and then just ended up dominating in the industry. And it changed our whole fee structure, our economic model. It just made everything so much better. So I think it's just like, I can't, I can't say that from a working standpoint, 
we had much issues. The, the one piece of advice I would say is just be careful who you get in bed with in terms of partners and affiliations and things like that. You know, we had a we had some issues there. And um, but, you know, it lasted 20 years in terms of how long I was there. And when I left, it was a thriving business. And from what I understand, it's, you know, the name changed to Bilardi Wong. Polly took over in my role. I, I understand it's doing even better, which is great. The way it should be, like as a founder, a co-founder, uh, I would have hated if after I left, like, you know, to see some blurb on your podcast that the business folded, <laughs> you know? So it's great that it lives on, you know, it lives on. It's like a child, you know? And and in fact, because I, I am still friends with Donna, your, your former partner, and and with Polly, um, you know they they've created a really amazing cottage industry, if you almost, you know, probably the wrong terminology, but you know where um, you know there were so many digitally native businesses that were starting, they really helped those businesses get in the mail and show them the value of direct mail, uh, living uh, aside with uh, with digital marketing. So you know they've taken it to the next level. Uh, as well. So, yeah, it's a great point you're raising because what we did, we we were, as you know, we were in an industry where a lot of catalog companies, the, the mature catalog companies were complaining about poor response rates and the inability to convert prospects to buyers and a constant search for new uh, sources of customers and places to mail to. And it was almost like a spiraling downwards at some point. And then all of a sudden, the e-commerce world exploded. And all of these companies were like, hey, let's get into that exciting, new, thriving catalog business. <laughs> and it was like, this is really weird. You know, the companies we've been working with for years, for decades, are all crying the blues and saying this, this model doesn't work anymore. And all of these companies are dying to get in and we're seeing them make it work. And it was really just an eye opener in terms of like, it was just fresh marketing blood, people who weren't jaded by decades of God knows what. And that was really the bulk of what our consulting services division did was to help maybe single channel companies expand to become multi-channel and integrate those channels from top to bottom, from the C-suite down to the, the mailroom. And uh, it was a great business. It was really a great business. Still is. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T.com. I mentioned at the top uh, about your wife, your late wife, uh, Adrienne Shelley, uh, in 2006, um, tragic event. She was murdered. You took that, um, obviously, uh, with significant grief, but you took that and propelled it uh, into a way to help lots of other people. So talk about the foundation that you created and you know what that's all about. She died November 1st, 2006. People were asking me very early on, where can we donate money? How can we honor her and make a donation? And I, I just, I didn't feel like it was something, I didn't want to recommend save the whales. Like it just, Adrian had a very specific, unique life and what she chose to do with her life. And I wanted, I wanted to think about that 
and have it have some meaning. And literally about two weeks after she died, I thought she was a struggling filmmaker. I'm going to help struggling filmmakers. I wasn't in the film business. You know, she was. And so I didn't know if there were, and there, and there were, but I didn't know if there were existing filmmaking institutions that provide support, financial and other, to women filmmakers. And so I just started a foundation called the Adrian Shelley Foundation. I put together a wide advisory board and a smaller board of directors, including everybody from actors and directors and publicists, and lawyers, studio people, whatever. And we gave out our first grant maybe six or seven months later. And the model was obviously needing to be very efficient because it wasn't my day job. Like I was in business. I had my own company, had responsibility, as did everybody who joined the board and the advisory board. So rather than be the kind of organization that elicits hundreds and thousands of tapes and you know CDs of movies and then makes a selection, we partnered with about a dozen existing academic and filmmaking organizations, everybody from the American Film Institute, Sundance, Tribeca, Columbia University, and just said, you guys have existing programs. Every year, send us three to five of your best candidates. We'll pick one of those and we'll award a grant. And the grants are typically around $5,000. And that's what we've been doing for the last 17 years. We've awarded over 100 grants to very talented women all over the world. Well, we have two big claim to fame. The first one came almost right after we started with a filmmaker named Cynthia Wade, who the year after getting her grant, won an Oscar for the short film that she made called Free Held, which eventually years later became a, a full length uh, narrative film of the same name. I think Julianne Moore started it. Um, and if you go to our website, you'll see a letter from her saying she couldn't have finished that film without our funds. So that was great. We knew like just out of the box that we were going to have an impact. And then the second major claim to fame occurred a couple of years ago when Chloe Zhao won the Best Director Oscar for Nomadland. And she was one of our grant recipients in 2012 when she was just making short films and getting ready to start making her first feature film. And so we we have had significant impact. And it's just it's been great. It's a great way to honor Adrienne's legacy and keep her her name out there in a very positive, productive way. And as I felt back then, it was a, a one way at least to try to spin some gold from this tragedy. That's great. And so Waitress, um, I should know this, she wrote Waitress? She wrote, directed, and co-starred in Waitress. Right. And then you took that and you did more with it over time, right? No, it's it's it's. Uh, I'd love to take credit for that. The movie eventually became a Broadway musical. I didn't have anything official to do with that. I was involved in some you know, indirect way uh, as just more of an in-the-loop thing, but I wasn't part of the production. Um, what I did was in 2007, after Adrian died, she was shopping. She died before she knew that the film, which she had submitted to Sundance, was even accepted. So she died not even knowing the film got into the Sundance Film Festival. So for all intents and purposes, she died a struggling filmmaker, and she had no clue where that film would go. Did get into Sundance. It was bought for almost $4 million at Sundance by Fox Searchlight Films. And it went on to do $20 million at the box office. Memorial Day weekend, 2007, when it opened, it was tied for fourth in the country, which was crazy. It was like behind Shrek 2 and something else too. And 
And and then there was like a bunch of huge movies, like sequels, like I think Knocked Up came out and some other sequel the following weekend. And the way the movie business works is that you could have a, a, a multiplex of like 15 screens, three or four movies, take all of those screens. And so the little indies, you know, they just timing wise, if you happen to fall into the wrong timing, you get nosed out of the theaters. And it, so the trajectory, which was well, if it was a different timing, the film probably could have gone on to do a hundred million dollars. But it just came out at a time when it couldn't get screens. Uh, and the the Broadway musical was historic. It was a all female creative team, and it lasted four years and thirteen or so hundred showings and performances and it was incredible it was like i think at the uh theater it was like the longest running show ever in that theater it's an incredible story so what i did was i took the script she was shopping for her next film called serious moonlight and i went out to california and redid all the meetings that she had done and i sat with a bunch of people and they, all they wanted to do was change the film change the story and i said guys i you know this is a legacy project i don't need to have this film out there if it's not her work and so I came back to New York, decided to raise the money myself, which was seven figures. I did that. And the crazy thing, which I still can't fathom, is she died in November of 06. That film was in the can December of 07. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. It came out in 2009. It was released by Mark Cuban's company, uh, Magnolia Pictures. Very cool. And then you did, a, as I, I mentioned also at the top, you did a documentary um, about her. Yes. And I, I had started writing a book. My natural inclination is, is to be a writer. But sort of midway, I got the sense that this should be a documentary. She was a filmmaker. Make a film. And I had no business making a film. I had never really hadn't, hadn't gone to film school. I hadn't directed. But what I looked at, and this is a really important thing for people who are listening who are either in a position where they need to reinvent themselves, they find themselves unemployed suddenly after years or whatever. Just take the skills you have. You could apply it to so many things. So I don't know if I would have thought this as a younger man, but somebody who was in my late 50s, I guess, at the time, I was like, I've been directing shit my whole life. I've been directing people. I built a company. I built a foundation. I didn't have charitable experience. I didn't have. I didn't go to B school. So I just said to myself, "You'll you'll do exactly the same thing you did before. You'll take the vision that you obviously have, a strong vision for this film, and you will surround yourself with really good people who know the the technical aspects of stuff, and they'll help you execute the vision." That's what I did. So, and it's it's. I think a really powerful film. It brings her back to life for 90 minutes, which was the goal to humanize her, to show the world who she was. It's on HBO streams on, on max came out in 2021. It was a tough film to make for a lot of reasons. I sat down with the guy who killed her, went to the prison and interviewed him because he had never told us the truth about what happened twice. He lied when he was in his confession. And also when he was sentenced, and uh, so I learned what really happened and then also to humanize her for him so that, you know, when he lays down at night and starts thinking about stuff, he sees the mother, the, sis the sister, the daughter, the, the wife who he took. And, uh, and now it's just there forever for my daughter, you know, to look at every so often in every different chapter of her life. 
Well, and uh, having known you and having uh, known you during that time, um, I, I enjoyed watching. It was a, a great story. And I thought that uh, you did humanize her. And, you know, I did not know her. Maybe I met her once and uh, I learned a lot. So it was, uh, I really enjoyed it. So uh, great job. Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imparity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Imparity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Imparity.com. All right, let's move on to your podcasting. You know, you talked at the beginning, you know, this creative, um, you know, wanting to, I know you have always been interested in politics. Talk about the podcast, The Back Room. I've realized that I've actually been Rupert Pupkin, <laughs> you know, the character from The King of Comedy. Like, I, I think I was born to be a talk show host, you know, like that's, I kind of identify with his character now in a way I never did, even though I've seen that movie a dozen times. As I said, I went to college for broadcast journalism. And so I'm really doing something I not only feel I was born to do, but at this stage of my life, I love what I'm doing. And I, I just find it so gratifying and so interesting. And I've gotten to a point now where I can get almost anyone I want to talk to as long as they're in like, not in the stratosphere. Like I have my wish lists, like I'm still trying to get Paul McCartney on and Joe Biden. You know, I have a couple of pie in the sky kind of candidates, but everybody else has been kind of fair game. It's a politics and pop culture podcast. It runs the gamut of politicians, media personalities, authors, academics, actors, directors, filmmakers, musicians. I interviewed Peter Frampton recently. I mean, it's like I'm really I feel like a kid in a candy store, even though I actually own one. Uh, but when I go in, I'm definitely not a kid. I'm an old man in a candy store. That's what I feel like, an old man in a candy store. <laughs> I've listened you know, to a bunch of episodes. And I have to admit, as I have watched you unfold the show, seeing the people, the guests you know, that you're mentioning, for somebody like me who does this you know, somewhat as a hobby, getting my brand out a little bit in the industry that I still work. You know, I, I was kidding with Andy as we were prepping for this show this week. He he just interviewed Edie Falco. Maybe, I don't know if that was your first time or it's been multiple times. I asked him to bring her along. You know, he told me he would. Well, but... I just happen to have Edie with me here. Carmela! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think your you know your list of guests have been great. Each of the shows are in, intriguing. For those that uh, haven't listened to the back room, you should. I would imagine you know we are recording this the end of January of 2024. We're in a presidential election kind of a cycle. This is right up your alley. Yeah, it's uh, a really exciting and terribly scary time, and everything in between. But I want to say that the exit polling and the results out of New Hampshire were really interesting. A lot of people are focusing on the fact that Donald Trump won. He won by double digits. But you have to, you're, you're a numbers guy, a marketer. You, you know, you know, you got to break the numbers down, right? The real story is behind the numbers. And the real story here is that he didn't win moderate Republicans. He did not win the independents. 
the turnout was really low. So the enthusiasm for Trump is not only behind where he was in 16 in New Hampshire and 20 in New Hampshire, the turnout, his margin of victory was the lowest since George H.W. Bush in 92. So it wasn't a great night for Donald Trump. And I think those of us who follow him on the socials and obsess in the news, his behavior in the last few days is an indication that he did not do well that night. He's scared. And he's scared because Nikki Haley finally, finally woke up and said, oh, I can attack this guy on a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) He's a criminal. He's on trial. He's calling me the House Speaker on January 6th. He thinks Obama's still president. I could use all that. Now, it's kind of astounding that it took her this long and no one else. I mean, people talk about Christie. Oh, he went after Trump. All Christie ever did, especially in those debates, was say that Trump's going to be busy in court this year. No one. I mean, think about it. You're running for president. Your opponent is indicted four times on 90. And nobody mentions that. Nobody mentions the word indictment. It's crazy. So between now and South Carolina, which I think is the end of February, and then you've got Michigan and then you've got Super Tuesday, March 5th, she is going to be hammering him. And she has, I think, figured out the secret to making him lose his mind. And that is to go after all of his crippling insecurities. He's not smart. He's not young. He's not rich. He's not successful. He's not honest. You know, and that drives him mad. And so between now and then, it is going to be cray cray. And I'm not saying he won't win the nomination because on paper, it certainly looks that way. But I'd be very happy as a, as a Democrat if he wins the nomination because I am way more confident today than I was a week ago that he is going to get trounced. Biden did it once before. There's no reason to think he wouldn't do it again. There, the math just doesn't work. Show me the people who in 2020 said, I hate Donald Trump and voting for Joe Biden. But now that he's been impeached twice and indicted four times and a judge called him a rapist and he incited a deadly insurrection, he's my guy. Like, show me that person. Maybe there's one, two, not enough to swing a defeat in 2020 to a victory in 2024. So listen to The Back Room with Andy Ostroy for more over the the next 10 months. You want that? (laughs) If you think your life is miserable and you need need some optimism, The Back Room with Andy Ostroy. Let's talk about the candy store. How did that come to be? I I don't know that story. Well, I spent part of my time in Rhinebeck, New York, and uh, there's a candy store there called Samuel's. My friends, Jeff and Hillary and Paul and his wife, Julie, we've all frequented it for years with our kids. One day, the owner, this guy, Ira, like, like 50 or 51 years old, he died of a heart attack, just suddenly died. And he had a boyfriend at the time who I guess had the ability, or husband, I'm sorry, I think it was his husband. So he had the ability to do with the store what he saw fit, and he didn't seem to really care. Jeff in particular, who always says that it was Ira who convinced him and his wife to move full-time to the Hudson Valley after he did a movie up there. We, we had dinner one night, I think it was at Paul's house, and he said, I told the husband not to do anything, that maybe my friends and I, maybe we'll loan you some money if it's money that you need. 
And literally the conversation took a turn within minutes. And it was like, you guys want to buy a candy store? Depends. You know, I was the only business guy there. So I was like, it just depends. Like if, you know, you see the balance sheet and there's like a million dollars in debt. No, the answer is no. But it really was kind of like just a simple, easy deal. It was a no brainer. It was a no brainer. And it was the kind of thing where you walk into a store. For me, it was so much fun because I had been working with retailers my whole career. You know, big retailers. But here I am, I'm now I'm part, I'm partner with apparently all this wisdom, perhaps. Uh, and I walk in and all I just, I start just seeing nothing but low-hanging fruit everywhere. The funniest part was this, they had this massive fridge. Like you walk in the store, step in about four feet, you walk into the side of a fridge which kind of blocks out almost the entire store. The store is filled with tons of candy. It's like Wonkaville, colorful candies. <laughs> but all you see is the fridge. So I said to the manager, and who's now our manager partner, John Traver, I said, so you got, I see there's like eight cans of Pepsi in here. Like, do we sell a lot of the stuff in here? And he goes, no, hardly ever. And I was like, get rid of the fridge. So that was like numero uno low-hanging fruit. Just start getting rid of everything that doesn't sell start monetizing the walls better, bring in some hard goods, higher margin items. And we kept the store looking exactly as it always looked. You know, I mean, if you walk in there and you've been living in town for 30 years, you'd be like, oh, Samuel's hasn't changed. But it changed a lot. But, you know, in a way that the community didn't really think so. And that was what we always wanted. We wanted to maintain the way it looked and felt and, and what it provided to the community. The other irony is when we took it over. We all used to stay all the time. None of us are getting rich off this business. We're still not getting rich off the business, but I have to say the distribution uh, once or twice a year ain't too shabby. So not going to get me a house in Paris, but uh, it's way more than I ever thought it would be. So it's become a great profitable business. It employs a lot of kids in the neighborhood. The community loves it. It's the happiest place on earth. And it's just been a great, great ride. I think it's like 10 years now, nine or 10 years. That's nice. So you don't get your distribution in gumballs? No, <laughs> gummies, gummies. I insisted on gummies, yeah. <laughs> we are at the end of uh, the show, Andy. I uh, could chat with you all day, especially on the politics stuff. Uh, at the end of the show, we do a two-minute drill, seven questions, one-word answer. I know that's not your specialty, one-word answers, but we're going to give it a try. Oh, Jesus. All right, you ready? Oh, my God. All right, yeah. a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Thin Optics. Favorite app on your phone? I got to say Twitter. Even X? Still. <laughs> no, I refuse. I will never call it X. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Wayfair. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Getting away from boring people at cocktail parties. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? I got to go with my own. AdrianShellyFoundation.org. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To live forever. And other than family, what's your most prized possession? My drum set. Callback. See what I did there? I did the comedy callback. <laughs> you closed the loop on the uh, the story, yep. right? Okay. Yep. Where can people reach out to you on social media, Andy? I am on Twitter. I am on Facebook. I am on threads. I'm on Instagram. 
all of which is, I think, at Andy Ostroy. Okay. Well, look, uh, it was great to see you. It's been a long time uh, that we've been in the same company. One of these days, I'm going to venture to uh, New York City where you, uh, where one day we, maybe where you'll be there and we'll, uh, we'll sit down and have a, a nice lunch together. Great. I would love that. Can I pay you a compliment for a second? Sure. I have known you for many, many years. You've always been an incredible human being, really smart, one of the smartest people I've ever met in that industry, who I've admired a lot. So kudos to you for what you're doing in your parallel life. Well, thank you. That's you really continue. nice. That's really nice of you to say. I, I appreciate that. I didn't have to put them up to that, folks. So no, that was uh, that was really nice. All right. Look, uh, have a great uh, rest of the day. Thank you for making the time doing this. And we'll be listening to your podcast. Thanks again, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Andy Ostroy for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one. As with most things in life, especially in business, you need to be careful with whom you partner. Andy called this out as one of the challenges that he faced during his time as an entrepreneur. Do your due diligence. Take the extra time up front to be certain that your interests are aligned and that everyone's goals are the same. And if they're not, at least be clear about what they are. Number two, resilience. We're all dealt with some challenges in our lives, and Andy had a major one with the death of his wife, Adrian. He took his energy and made her legacy one that he and his family are all very proud of. They devoted time and energy to help keep Adrian's work and memory alive in the form of the foundation that he created. We can use situations like this to help others and to help ourselves. And number three, sometimes it can take you a while to find those things that you were put on this earth to do. Andy spent many years in a career that he'd not really planned for, but continued with because it provided for he and his family. It was not until more than 20 years of having been in the direct mail industry that he finally made the opportunity for himself to be creative by writing, producing, and being active in filmmaking. And he likes to play the drums. Don't give up on your dreams. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details.